Welcome to the Lead More Podcast. I'm your host, John T. Meyer. In this show, we talk to and learn from the great leaders of the past and present to create more leaders for the future. We just sat down and recorded episode four with Tuniza Islam. It was an incredible conversation. We talked about how do you know that you're ready when the moment strikes. After 20 years of doing work in advocacy and social justice, her moment is now. We looked at the critical need that our community and our immigrant community needs right now in Sioux Falls, South Dakota and around the country. And then lastly, we talked about as a leader, how do you prepare, how do you delegate and get the next generation ready for this important work moving forward? It was an awesome conversation. I know you're gonna enjoy it. So let's dive right in with Tuniza. Well, welcome, Tuniza, to the show. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for inviting you me here. Good. Yeah, you've been, uh, you know, hands getting your hands dirty and real busy these last few months, and you were before. So let's yep. do let's do a quick update. Um, we'll get into kind of the origin of your organizations, but just last uh, hundred days, hmm. what has your life been like? Well, as an organization, we've completely pivoted. Really? Yeah. Um, because we respond to what the community is asking. Sure. And so what the community was asking for in this pandemic time is resources, right? Monetary okay. assistance, yep. um, information about their rights yep. and so on. And so we pivoted 180 degrees, if you will. Awesome. All staff was fielding those calls from staff, um, from people in the community, mostly from Smithfield workers. Yep. Um, and so that sent us on a really different trajectory that we had not anticipated or budgeted for. Sure. And I should probably back up because yeah. I, I, I got excited about what you've been up to. <laughs> yeah. What uh, to Explain what South Dakota Voices for Peace does. You're the executive director. When sure. did you start it? What's the mission? So South Dakota Voices for Peace organically came together around January 2017. And it was really in after rapid- After the election, right? Right after yeah. the election. It was in rapid response to what I would say a slew of bigoted pieces of legislation, bills and resolutions in our state capital pier against immigrants, refugees, and Muslims um, in South Dakota. And so this is work I've done previously. Uh, I took that hat off when I moved here to South Dakota in 2012. Yeah, Yeah, it kind of burnt me out for the first six years. But put that hat back on. um, People just came together. Uh, I did what I know to do is organize people. Um, And so I just use social media in my like private capacity and said, Hey, these are bills up in pier and we need to fight them. Um, I engaged what we call impacted communities. So those are immigrants, refugees, and Muslims to be their own voice in fighting these things. Cause we've had a great track record of allies in pier fighting. And that would be like organizations or people or both? Yeah. Okay. So faith communities, sure. interfaith communities, people of conscience, yep. you know, all of the good people yep. in the state. Um, but we never saw actual immigrants and refugees coming to Pierre. And so there's tons of hurdles, yeah. right? It's yeah. January through March. <laughs> it's Pierre. Yeah. It's a it's a whole day off from work. Yeah. You know, True. you have to find childcare. Sure. All of the hurdles, but we were able to gather enough enough people to go. Um, and it was really monumental. I mean, we had 
legislators come and tell us that they couldn't remember the last time a refugee or a Muslim was testifying on their own behalf. Yeah, fighting their own battle. Right, and yeah. so the power of that of that voice and presence sure. um, was something that we continued with, um, and we created a storytelling project kind yep. of out of that. But after session, um, we started tracking what we call Islamophobic events in, okay. in this um, state. It's not the best term, Islamophobia, but it really talks about bigotry against um, Muslims, immigrants, okay. and refugees because we just oftentimes all get pulled together. Sure. Right. And so we tracked, since 2017, we've tracked 36 Islamophobic events in the state of South Dakota. And that could be, describe what an event could be then? So an event could be um, a national speaker who comes to our state to talk about um, why you should be scared of refugees, immigrants, or Muslims, or why it's a danger, Islamophobia, spreading Islamophobia. It could be showing a documentary that we know is Islamophobic. And so the way we know this is because we're plugged into national networks that have been doing this work. I've been doing this work for over 10 years. Yeah, Minneapolis, right? Yeah, yep. And so, I mean, I was already plugged into these networks, so it's really easy. Once you know, right, then you know that these are national networks trying to push this messaging and there's actually been studies done now in the Haas Institute. Um, they've done reports on Islamophobia in the United States and okay. have found that over $50 billion has been pumped into this industry Whoa. since 2005, I wow. believe, is when the studies started. So, so is there, with these other organizations and your background, is there, kind of like in business, is there a model or a framework you can follow to create your organization? Or did you put your own twist on it or how do you kind of, how do, when you say you could, there's other networks to follow, how did you create yours? Yeah. I mean, most image? organizations are, have a model, right? Okay. Which is, um, you know, our goal really at the end of the day, like if you could whittle it down into one sentence is to create equitable communities, yeah. right? And create an equitable South Dakota. And what that means for us is, um, social change, yeah. right? And so for me, social change can only occur when you're thinking about this continuum of social change, top down and bottom up. Yep. So top down for, for us is policy, policy. change, yep. you know, fighting these bills, um, enacting bills that are inclusive, so on and so forth. So we're doing that. And we created a C4 entity to yep. do that work, South Dakota Voices for Justice. But then it's also the grassroots work, right? Building community, organizing community. And for us, our focus is on immigrant, refugee, and Muslim communities to understand their power, okay. right? Their power in their vote, yeah. their power yeah. in knowing their rights in the workplace and lodging complaints to force their employers yeah. to do the right that's thing. That's where the last hundred days has been. Yeah. Real and busy. so that's our C3 work. Um, and it's also just doing broader education into the community about, you know, my entire life I've done interfaith work is what I say. I'm a Muslim yeah. by faith. And so I so don't. So can you define, just to educate me, I, yeah. I think I know what that means sure. when I hear interfaith, but what, is, what does it mean to you? Well, usually it means learning about each other's faith, okay. right? Uh-huh. And wanting to really concentrate on the similarities of our faiths, which is really beautiful. 
Because right. I remember seeing, maybe this is an example, when you were in peer, I think on your Instagram yeah. or something like ELCA was there yeah. and the Muslim community and all these, the bishop. Um, yeah, that I mean, so a lot of really just amazing things have happened since we kind of started this work in 2017. So the ELCA is one yeah. of the largest synods in our state. Yeah. They've had Lutheran Day in peer for years. Like, sure. Decades. I don't know, 40 years. Let's yeah. just pick a decade. Um, and under the leadership of Bishop Zelmer, who recently retired, yep. he just decided he was going to change it to Interfaith Day. Cool. That it wasn't going to be Lutheran Day anymore. Um, and so that brought in Muslims, That's Hindus, awesome. indigenous um, spiritualities. Like it was really monumental. And coincidentally, we, there was pushback that day too. Yeah, I do remember From that. people who, who believe that being interfaith and celebrating together is somehow a threat hmm. um, to the state by legislators who yeah. are up there. Yeah. Um, so it's always really interesting, right, to see what these moments bring out in yeah. our, um, what I would say are elected officials and decision makers. Um, so we're doing that top-down work and bottom-up work because, I mean, sometimes people say you're doing too much, like yeah. just pick the thing. But you have to have both. But I, for me, I don't know how when your mission is social change, how you can just pick one. I mean, we've been strategic in how we're rolling it out, but at the end of the day, we're starting yep. both and hopefully coming into the middle. I think it is, like you said before, if you're not making policy change at the end of the day, yeah. how are you moving the needle? Right. But to move the needle, you probably need the community, the grassroots yeah. to put pressure, to put to vote. To, do and you need both to make absolutely. it happen? Absolutely. I, yeah. I mean, if you don't, all the protests, all of the discussions, all yep. of the things. At the end of the day, if you don't vote the people out of office that are not aligning with this moment, then what is it worth? Yeah. Because they don't have to listen to us, and yeah. some are not. Yeah. They have very purposefully decided what the agenda is going to be, right? And so when you, when you understand the power you have as an individual um, to protest, but then also to take that go all the way through yeah. this continuum yeah. to take that action to effectuate change. I mean, change is happening in every in every moment, right? In every action that you take. But for me personally, on my, I don't want to age myself, <laughs> but I would say 20-year journey of activism, sure. I've really landed in this place, in this moment of if we don't use our power to vote, if we don't change laws, if we don't fight the laws that are bigoted, then then we're kind of doomed to be in this place of exclusivity. Sure. That's awesome. I love that. It gives me kind of goosebumps <laughs> when you know that, like, it, when you see someone who knows they're doing, like, their life's purpose mm -hmm. and, like, the timing is right, like, your yeah. your background and your your experience is right and, and the moment is right, which I think is really cool. Yeah, thank you for saying that. You know, I've had been having a lot of these discussions about communities who were ready for the moment and communities who are not ready for the moment. Yeah, and how right? do you tell? Um, <clears throat> by the demands that are being made. And I, and I, you know, clearly Sioux Falls is very different from Minneapolis. Sure. Right? But um, I'm really good friends with Jason Soul. He's a fellow Bush fellow. We were yep. in the same cohort. He's a huge activist in the in the Twin Cities. He was actually BLM president and okay. AACP president. And then he was hired by the mayor of St. Paul, the first yeah. black mayor, yeah. to be Current mayor. 
yeah, yep. the current mayor to be a community police liaison. And for me, the symbolism of that, to have the former BLM leader in your community now be the community police liaison for this city yeah. was really bold. When did this happen? Um, two, three years ago. Whenever okay. yeah, Mayor so, Carter yep. came on board, that was kind of the first really amazing things that are happening, right? So clearly Minneapolis is very different, but they were, I mean, they've been building and building and they've been suffering too, right? Yeah. By police brutality in particular, but all of the racial disparities. I mean, Minnesota is one of the worst places for black people to live in every realm, hmm. right? But so they've been organizing and building and organizing and building for generations now in Minneapolis. And they were ready for this moment. Yeah. And in this moment, they're demanding, which I know people, a lot of people feel uncomfortable about, about using this word, but they're demanding to abolish the police, right? They're demanding that they're, decision makers reimagine what their community can look like. Hmm. And the city council, I mean, the majority of the Minneapolis city council has agreed to do that, right? Um, several institutions in Minneapolis have withdrawn um, their contracts with the Minneapolis police department. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's what I mean by like, they were ready for sure. this moment. Whereas here in Sioux Falls, though it's different, um, I think we've had a harder time figuring out what those demands are going to be yeah. and who those demands are going to be with, but we're getting there. Yeah. Is you it know? just a structural like organization yeah. thing? Is yeah. It, okay. I mean, if you really look at our, our advocacy landscape, right. In South Dakota, I mean, who would you say even does advocacy work here? Right. So there's advocacy work. But then who is doing racial? I probably think of you. <laughs> well, I mean, thank you. But I mean, I there's mean, yeah. Dakota Rural mean, right? Action. Like many, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's ton there's Different. a lot of advocacy going on. You could say the chamber does advocacy. Yeah, sure. You can say um, Dakota Rural Action is doing food sustainability advocacy. There's a lot of advocacy. But then the next step for me has been who's doing racial justice advocacy work in our community? Sure. Right? And that's where everyone's like, ah, uh, mm, yeah. maybe you guys. So, <laughs> so that I think is another institutional issue um, in our state and in this moment and kind of figuring okay. all of those pieces out together. Up, yeah. yeah. Let's go back to, so I guess, let's say Christmas 2016. Okay. Oh, so you had your hat off at that time, or, okay. or maybe you're starting to yeah. think about putting it back on. One thing in this podcast is about leadership. I think there's this interesting. I believe leaders come in all different shapes and sizes and, and different titles and roles and colors. And, um, but sometimes they are, they are born like, and they know they're going to be a leader and sometimes they're thrusted in. Mm. And so you were doing this work in Minneapolis. You come back to South Dakota or you come to South Dakota, not mm. back, take a few years off. Were you compelled and just like you knew you had to, to step up or were people pushing you or tell me about how you decided in January of 2017 to do this? Well, it really wasn't January 20. I mean, it wasn't December 2016 to January 2017, right? So when I moved Same here- slow bubble. <laughs> I mean, it, when I moved here in 2012 because of my husband's job, yep. everyone always asks, why are you here? So um, well, I was a new- I think that South Dakota, we need to, <laughs> we need to be okay with that, yeah. right? But then also in, that's an opportunity, right? When, yeah. it, when one person comes could be because of finance or healthcare or agriculture, then often there's other talented people that come yeah. with that family. Absolutely. And I was a new mom. Our mm -hmm. oldest was just one and a half at that time. Okay. And literally I did not know a soul here. 
Like hmm. none of my network in Minneapolis, I could identify someone they knew from South Dakota. Yep. So it was a, um, it was probably one of the lowest moments in my life when sure. I first moved here because it was a new place. I didn't know anybody. I mean, I didn't even trust anyone to be the babysitter of my yeah. child. Hmm. Um, and then I kind of, as I do, um, snapped out of it and said, okay, let me figure out what's going on in Sioux Falls. Yeah. So I started, I think one of the first things I did was I attended a diversity conference. It's like, oh, this seems cool. Yeah. And so a lot of the people I met that at that conference are now my board members. That's awesome. Right? Like, so I put myself out there as myself. Like no one knew who I was. No one even knew someone who knew me <laughs> at, at that point. And so I just kind of explored. And then one of my former colleagues encouraged me to apply for the Bush Fellowship. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask when that felt like. So I didn't even know about the Bush Foundation. Yeah. Well, which is funny because you were in Minneapolis. Yeah, I didn't even know yeah. about them when I was in Minneapolis. So I applied. Um, my, my goal, my project was... Um, to think about innovative legal services for immigrant communities, because I noticed there's a lot of immigrants here, but not many services particular to them. And I should just for any listeners, the Bush Found Fellowship is a two-year. It or? was when I was a okay. fellow, and yep. you get a a grant, a stipend. I don't know how you, what you call it. You get paid to do yeah. a project that's passionate to. Yep. Your and it's focus, very unique because yeah. it goes to an individual. Okay. Right, like yeah. you don't have to be an organization yep. to receive the grant. Um, and the, that Bush Fellowship is what really opened up all the doors cool. that I needed to get to where I am he, today. So I really do credit. I mean, I had no idea how prestigious the Bush Fellowship sure. was until I got <laughs> it and started meeting all these Bush yeah. Fellows because yeah. it's gone through iterations. Past and present, yep. It's gone through iterations as well. And I met, I mean, there's a really strong Bush Fellow community here in Sioux Falls. Did that program, in the spirit of leadership, did they do anything? Obviously, you're working on your project and they gave yeah. you the funds to allow you to focus on that. But did they do anything that helped you grow grow as a leader in terms of yeah? I mean, coaching, they gave education. us coaching. I mean, to be quite honest, in that moment, I decided to start my private immigration law practice at the same time to do my needs yeah. assessment, essentially for the project. Yeah, right? So like, what are the for, needs? Because you're a lawyer by trade, Hamlin Law, right? Yep. Okay. Yep. Immigration lawyer. So I started that practice. So I had a lot going for me all of a sudden. <laughs> um, and that trajectory, so I mean, I've been building, yeah. right? Like, so when I when I talked previously about how you just need to build, 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 and there will be a moment. And if you're ready for the moment, then the trajectory could be even steeper, yeah. right? Yeah. And I'd like to think, and reflecting on the last 10 years, that's essentially what I've been doing. Yeah. Like, these are all just different toolboxes I've just naturally known I needed, yeah. right? Um, and this was the moment for this work in South Dakota was January, 2017, right? Yeah. Um, cause just, and everything since then that's happened, like yeah. because of the Trump administration or stuff that's happening here locally has shown that there is, and I'll use the word, a very progressive community socially conscious progressive community here in Sioux Falls. Mm -hmm. They just didn't have a place to channel sure. that energy. And now they do. Interesting. And when it comes to immigration issues. So we've been really able to harness that. So I asked this question to Bonnie in episode two, what, uh, what do you feel like is different about this moment right now? So we'll say from George Floyd mm -hmm. to now, what, what, what's, what's the, 
recipe that makes this moment unique? You know, it's a national moment. What happened in Minneapolis sparked a national moment and even global. Absolutely. Thank you. A global moment. And I think oftentimes here in South Dakota and Sioux Falls, we feel unique sure. and secluded, yeah. kind of hand in hand, right? Yep. And I keep, <laughs> I keep urging people to notice that this is a national moment and we need to do our part here in Sioux Falls to be a part of that moment or we're going to miss the boat essentially, hmm. right? And so I don't know. I mean, I don't know why this was the moment, but it is, yeah. right? And it's an opportunity to have some really difficult and honest conversations and really move the needle. I mean, since I've been here, since that first diversity conference that I went to, I used to go to these diversity conversations and roundtables in the community. And um, so I've been here since 2012. Yeah. So that was not the plan to be here for eight years, <laughs> but here we are. Um, South Dakota does have its way of, <laughs> somehow kind of getting it just its hooks happens. in people. Right. But the needle on those conversations have not moved from my perspective in mm. eight years. So I can't even speak for the people who've been doing it for 20 years or 25 yeah. years here in the community. So there needs to be something that jolts the conversation, right, into the next level, yeah. if you will. Um, and, you know, for me personally, I, I don't attend those conversations anymore. I don't lend my time to those sure. conversations anymore because I believe my skill set and my time is better used and more valuable to building power and impacted communities right now. Okay. I mean, I do, obviously I attend these events, yeah, yeah, yeah. and but you won't see me as much as maybe you used to sure. at those places. And that's understandable. Yeah. yeah. How do... Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask is how do you, so eight, if you feel at eight years and you don't feel like the needle has moved yet, how do you wake up every day and get the courage, the drive, the willpower to go back out and, and fight again? It's just who I am. I don't know any different. I can't imagine sitting at home and being like, oh, you know, because my friend called me in January 2017 who was a lobbyist in Pierre. Uh-huh. Because they found out the work that I used to do. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a secret anymore. Yeah. Um, and they said, hey, we're seeing these really ugly bills impacting Muslim communities. So I had a choice in that moment. Was I going to put that hat back on and do something? Or was I going to say, yeah. good luck? Yeah. Right? And I, I've never been able to Just tell someone else, good luck good with luck. that one. <laughs> right? So, um, so that's a leader. Yeah, for sure. And it was the moment. It was a moment and like the understanding of the tools that I have and how valuable they are in this moment, right? And so just realizing that, um, and I would not have been able to do this work without the support of all the allies and the people who have come together to give money, to start a legal services program, you know, to help write grants so that we can become an organization with now five staff. I mean, we've gone from me pro bono staff yeah, in January. Yeah, 100 hours a week probably. Yeah, and but it's stuff I, it's what I love, yeah. right? And I have an amazingly supportive partner, a husband, and my kids love coming to rallies cool. and starting chants. So it's it's just who we are. Yeah. yeah, and that's so cool too when you start talking about modeling that, you know, 
to your children, mm-hmm. right? Showing them to stick stick up for what you believe, yeah. to find that willpower to get back up another day. Because um, that's one thing I think about is, you know, we try to, we have high value in, 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 in the community and our family and our household with our two little girls and try to give time, talent, treasure, sit on a board or write a check. But like, it's still different when at the end of the day, I go back to my job, right? And my right. job is, it, and you can make change there at that level. Absolutely. But for someone like you who every day has to, be on the front line of fighting that battle. I just wonder where you get the where the like the how you recharge your batteries. I guess how do you do that? Yeah, my faith. Sure. Honestly, I mean the my faith Islam gives me a framework for social justice, hmm. and that really feeds my soul and like feeds my passion to act. And so I really, you know, we. It's just interesting when you reflect on the timing of things. Like when you're in the moment, you're not really able to reflect as thoroughly. But our our holiest month, our month of fasting, Ramadan, um, was in May. Mm-hmm. Um, and so April, May. And it was our holiday when the murder of George Floyd took place. So that month is for me personally is a reset button, if you will, on my faith and my focus um, and my spirituality, which really kind of wanes in the like by month 12, I'm like, all right, I'm ready to get back, get centered again. Um, But there was something about Ramadan falling right before George Floyd and this the last hundred days, yeah. as you mentioned, you know, that has made me realize how important I don't talk about my faith often. Um, cause I went to Christian schools my whole life sure. and faith was, um, used against me, I would say in a way. So I'm very conscious that when I'm talking about my faith, people don't feel like I'm trying to shove it down their throats, if you will. So I'm really conscious about that, but it really has, I mean, I really do believe that my faith is why I do my work. That's cool. Yeah. Um, So in this particular line of work, I think there's a lot of different style. I mean, I guess leadership in general, lots Mm -hmm. of different styles. You don't have to be one type. And that's one of my goals with this, with this show. Um, But when do you feel like, you know, I'll follow you on Facebook and sometimes it's like, hey, this is going on, check this out. And sometimes it's a little more, you got to like turn up the notch, right? It's a little (laughs) more aggressive, uh, whether it be tone or, you know, words. How do you strike that balance, right? Like, because I think you talked about like something like Interfaith Day seems like a really great, uh, we're having healthy conversations, we're getting together, we're sitting at the table. When do you know that it needs to be more, I don't want to say shock and awe because that's not it, but like, when do you have to kind of bring the fire? <laughs> well, you know, honestly, like I don't think of it that way. Okay. I think of it as how angry am I about this thing that's happening? And I'm not an angry person, no. right? No. <laughs> so like I can gauge like this is really bad. Like sure. why is this happening? Why are more people not infuriated like I am? Like yep. I always kind of go through that assessment. And sometimes the post that comes out will be like the 10th draft, <laughs> right? I am, I try to be very conscious when I'm, when I know I'm angry, when I'm writing something, um, to be very conscious of how I'm writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I've, I've learned that the hard way. Sure. I mean, I think we all learn from oh, our yeah. mistakes, right? Um, and the role I have in the community, people, I've never really fully embraced the role I have in the community. 
this is just who I am. Like yeah. this is my everyday. This yeah. is my work. You These mean, are my meaning passion. like people have sort of thrusted thrusted you into a role that yeah you didn't sign up for. Or? Yeah, I mean, I've had previous mentors of mine be like, make sure you don't say this, or you you know stay away from making a comment about this. And so when people start telling me that, to me that signals that I have some more influence than I originally thought. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's hard to gauge, right? Sure. Like, how do you gauge that really? Um, but those are all kind of signals to me. So I am more conscious about how I post. But I mean, at the end of the day, there's so many things to be angry about right now. I try to focus my anger on on our work. So let's talk about what you were doing around that because you talked about at the very top of the show, the pivot that you had to make. Yeah. Um, you rallied the your team quickly around um, how do we get, uh, we'll say relief or basically resources to that community. Tell us what you did. Well, Uh, the interesting thing was we all of a sudden, because of the trusted leaders we have on our team and that are from the community, right? Uh, Board members and staff, um, which I'm really proud of. I mean, our staff reflects the communities we work with a hundred percent. And so, one of our staff members used to work at Smithfield. Mm. And so all of a sudden we started becoming HR for Smithfield. Employees were calling us, asking us questions because they were not getting answers from their HR and hoping that we could help find out. So what we started to do right away is collect these stories, right? What we started to right away is organize other small nonprofit organizations in our community that probably most people don't know about, but are doing the work in Hispanic, African communities in particular. And we formed the Dream Coalition. The other really strange, I mean, the crazy thing that happens in rapid response time was the fury of national media that came into Sioux Falls. I mean, we had within a, a two-week period, issue. yeah, around yeah. the Smithfield yeah. hotspot, we probably had over 60 calls wow. um, and interviews. And so we very quickly put together like a media team amongst the Dream Coalition. That's where you will see Nancy Reynosa from K Pasa and myself and Sarah Telehoon, who started the Children of Smithfield group. So all of these organi- organizing things that would take months to happen, yeah. happen in like three days, yeah. right? Um, and beautiful things have happened. So like Sarah, I was like, Sarah, you guys, you're a child of a Smithfield worker. I'm getting calls from other children. Can you guys organize something? Right. And they ended up being the spokespeople for their families because the employees didn't want to talk. And now there's a children of Smithfield in Iowa and Nebraska. Oh, no way. Yeah. So it's just really amazing to see how these things happen when you're ready for the moment Mm -hmm. and can, you know, Mm -hmm. embrace it and go with it. Um, So we we wanted to make sure that the narrative of the employees was getting out in media. And so we were able to, I mean, we had BBC, ABC nightly news, you know, Telemundo, like all of those places came to town. And so we did that based on the calls we were getting. Um, we knew we needed to put together a really fund. We were talking about it even before the Smithfield hotspot because the federal stimulus package, the CARES Act, did not include many in immigrant and refugee communities for Hmm. various reasons. So we knew they were not getting a stimulus check where everybody else was, right? Yeah, or what I see yesterday, like uh, $1.4 billion went to people who have been deceased. 
Did yeah. you see that <laughs> checks? Yeah. That's ridiculous. Not sure where that money is, but we could use that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always like this daunting thing, right? Like, how do you create a really fun? We've never done that work before. Yeah. And the people yeah. who were doing it was the community foundation, and all of a sudden, it became a, an amazing public-private partnership for ones who falls fun. And we're like, we can't do that. Yeah. You know, like, how do we even? We don't have the resources for that. Yeah. We're all like volunteers in the community, essentially. Um, But we knew it's what our community needed. And I said, we can do it if we all agree to do it together, right? So what did that take as a leader to say that? It took a lot of trust from my board and the board trusts me, which which I grapple with because sometimes I'm like, oh, maybe this isn't the right idea because this is something I really want to do, but it's maybe not the right time. Right time, right place. But it was the right time. And... um, Another Bush fellow in Rapid City, Matt Elman, he's with the Numad Group. Um, okay. This is work that they they do consultancy work with nonprofits. So I reached out to him. I said, this is the idea we're having. How do I start? And he's like, we want to help you make this happen. So cool. when when you get people on board like that, you start know. Start to feel some momentum. I'm like, okay, if he wants to help me, then I can make this happen, yeah. right? So and we did. So he helped create the process. Numad Group did. We worked together. That took like a week, a week um, started making phone calls to banks in the area and helping us figure out checks versus gift cards versus like sure. how do we get money to people right away. As fast as possible, yeah. Right, and like just amazing people started saying, we want to help with this, we want to help with that. Um, got seed money from Wells Fargo, $50,000. Cool. So it felt like, wow, you know. But little did we know $50,000 was like two, two disbursements, you know, in terms of how our applications were going because of the demand and that's the other piece we didn't really know how to predict is the demand we knew from based on the calls we were getting in sioux falls and it's a statewide fund the emergency really fund for immigrants we just had no idea because no one's engaged our communities in this way yeah there's no email list or like spreadsheet with everybody yeah right and there's always there's like oh yeah there's like that dairy farm out there that we think has like 200 immigrants that work there but no one knows for sure and there's like 30 meat processing plants in our state and like what's going on over there you know like there's just no information so um we took a big leap, leap of faith in doing that and putting all the structure in place yeah and then once we got the Bush grant, so Bush gave us a. And so that's what I was going to ask next. Was that was that already in the works? Was that just coincidental timing, or did you was, was that a reaction to? So it was uh, it was um, coincidental, but they were also trying to be nimble sure. in the moment too. So again, it was just the moment. And so that's a community grant of. What was a quarter million dollars? Um, close. It was two hundred thousand. Okay. Okay. Yep. So the innovation grant. I'm a Bush fellow. You know, I'm yeah, part so of that Bush there. network. Yeah. I've always kind of kept them in the loop of the work, but I have never leaned on them for rapid response work because their process is very slow. Sure. Which is fine. Yep. That's their process. Big organization. Yeah. So I just kind of made an ask. I said, "Hey, um, do you know anybody that can fund our fund?" That's all I said in the email. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I got. A call back and said they said we got the big check yeah <laughs> like 
we want to fit this into our innovation process. Are you willing to be nimble with us? I said, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm willing. <laughs> yeah. So that, that grant was split three ways. Okay. So 50,000 went into the fund. Um, 80,000 went to hire staff. So yeah. when we were like, cause at that point we were like, okay, now we're all going to have to volunteer to administer yeah, that this work. fund. Yeah. How is that going to work? So just like, Having faith that all of the pieces were going to fall into place, cool. and then they started to. And so today, let's see, it's this, uh, June twenty sixth. Yep. Um, so about how much have you weeks. raised? So we opened up applications on May fifteenth. Okay. So in five weeks, we've received over seven hundred applications wow. statewide, and it's just really in this moment of of crisis like the beauty that's coming out of it is really understanding what our community looks like in the state right and having data like i i love data which mm-hmm. we just don't have enough yeah. of in our state for yeah. anything um but once you false fund actually reached out to us and said hey i don't think we're getting that many immigrant applications yeah, and i was like oh no like are people gonna apply to this fund you know but now we're at 700 and um we are at, what are we at? I was just doing the numbers yesterday. We're at 500,000. Our goal was 500,000 and we're at 500,000 and there's a couple more outstanding conversations. It's just been really amazing. And it can still keep going, right? People, it can keep going. So, I mean, we're going to have to cap it some yeah, way. I mean, yeah. it was always meant to be temporary yeah, in terms yeah. of our work in the really fun, um, but just so many amazing conversations that are happening in this moment. Like, I've talked to private donors consultants that okay. I never knew existed as a job. I was like, that's a great job. Interesting. Anonymous donors consultants who there's anonymous donors in our Ready country. Ready and want to give, yeah. They just they just want to give money. Yeah. And we we have the infrastructure and we were ready for the moment, awesome. you know, again. So what um so eight years. You've been doing this for eight years. If it's twenty twenty eight, what do you want Sioux Falls to look like? Representation. Um, and elected officials. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's severely like That's the lacking. priority. And if we can do that, other things will follow. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm really at the place in my life where the policy change and the elected officials need to change. So when are you going to run? Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I love this work. I love it. I hate bureaucracy. Like I used to work for the city of Minneapolis and I had a boss who was a little rogue. So I was able to be a little bit rogue, but I just can't. When I see what needs to be changed, for example, when I saw we needed to have an emergency relief fund and I was able to do it in two weeks with my team, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's what I want to do. I don't want to be in conversation after conversation and trying to. But I will definitely push the conversation, yeah, right? Yeah. Like I, I just feel really passionate about needing people on all levels to change the systems, yeah. right? And I think there's some people who really want to run for office, and I want to support those people. Yep. I'm just, I don't see my place there. Okay, I, I'm, I see my place as the agitator a little yeah. bit more. The <laughs> <laughs> needler. Yeah, exactly. Um, so a big part of leadership is being able to pass the baton. Mm. So a CEO to the next person, um, you know, in, in politics, in in nonprofit work, you can't do this alone. And you haven't, you know, yeah. there's been a ton of people. Yeah. Now your team is, what do you say, five? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, yeah, what does it look like to delegate, to pass the baton, to prepare the next cohort of yeah. leaders? You know, my 
One of my first inspirations like in a work setting was my supervisor at my first job. And I just observed her, you know, like I, now that I reflect back to 20 years ago in that moment, I just watched how she did her work and how she very graciously like had difficult conversations and just worked through. And then I watched other supervisors who were more rogue and how they dealt with those situations and just learned from all, all of those experiences. Um, and, you know, I've always been the only the only person of color, the only woman of color, the only Muslim. I've always been one of the only in all work situations until I worked for the city of Minneapolis. Sure. And I describe that moment. We were a team of um, attorneys of color, so mostly African-American, a couple Asian like myself, and then we had one LGBT woman. So we were all minorities in some way. And it was in that in those years that I realized I had been holding my breath for 28 years because hmm. I wasn't really able to just let my guard down, right? I was always educating. I was always being the example. I was, I took that on too. Like yeah. some people don't want that role, but I did. Yeah. So I took that role on. But when I was in that setting, I was like, wow, I don't have to explain much here. And like, when my holiday was coming, my boss actually approached me and said, Hey, isn't your holiday coming up? Make sure you get those days off requested soon. You know, it wasn't, it was a very different feeling than any of my other life experiences. And so for me here in Sioux Falls, that's the experience I want to give to other young leaders of color. And I'm really proud that our first hires have been young leaders of color in our community. And that slowly, you know, one of my mentors and one of my bosses had always said, you're always going to have haters and people who push back. Like it's just part of the natural world Mm -hmm. order. Right. But people cannot argue against the actions and the results you get. So always think about what result are you going to get by whatever action you're trying to take and people will come along. And I really, I've really lived that out, I think in the last 10 years since he's told me that. And so I see that happening now, you know, like the young leaders who are interested in social justice and racial justice and advocacy work, they're coming, they're slowly coming now. And though that's, that to me is passing the baton. I mean, I'm in my 40s. I won't say the exact number. <laughs> so it's I'm ready to pass the baton. Sure. And I think um, I've noticed in this community that there's what I would refer to as elders. Like culturally, we mm-hmm. always respect our elders and look up to them for guidance. But there's some elders in town who've been around for a long time. And, you know, they weren't ready for like this surge of young people to come up. And I, I hope that we at Voices for Peace can become that place. Like we can't, we're not going to mentor and like do all the amazing things that are going on, but we want to become the place where people who want to do social justice work are coming, right? And building. So that sounds like you would say you're hopeful for what Sioux Falls looks like in eight years. Absolutely. I mean, I'm so hopeful. I mean, it's kind of like both sides of the coin. Like I'm worried about this amazing generation of diverse youth we have here in Sioux Falls and how it's getting more racially diverse as we get younger. I'm Mm -hmm. worried. I'm worried about their mental health. Um, I'm worried about 
what pipelines there are to keep these young people in our communities. Hmm. But I'm also really hopeful that they're the ones who are going to push the needle. Because, I mean, if you don't need to have a different conversation, most won't, right? Unless you're very forward-thinking. Um. So that pressure to move the needle is we're I think in Sioux Falls like we're almost there. Cool. Uh, I'm gonna end with a couple rapid fire ones, Uh-oh. and then um, I'm gonna ask you about mentors. Okay. So you've been touching on that. So just kind of general. I like to know how other how other leaders, their routines, the things they like. <laughs> are you a big uh, reader? What are you reading right now? Oh gosh, this is really embarrassing. You brought something actually. I, I did to make it look like I read a book. <laughs> But I hate reading. It's so embarrassing because I feel like all super smart people read. And it's not that I hate reading. I just don't have time to read. I want to read so many great books. But I've started to um, listen to audiobooks way more than I used to, which has been great. Um, But uh, as a board, our board decided in January to read Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And it was just like amazing timing. And I'm reading it again, actually. That was cool. Like the board suggested that and everybody did it. Yeah, we agreed. I mean, we do this work. I mean, even though we're a social justice organization, we're continuously doing this anti-racist work amongst ourselves. As as Even though we're people of color, like I... I am a believer that we're all racist in some way, and that's okay. Like, we need to acknowledge that to be able to move forward Hmm. and understand how to shift into becoming this term that's being used now, anti-racist, which is really actionable, right? Yeah, more active versus passive. Exactly. And so we're always doing that internal work. I'm doing that internal work personally. It's a lot of about just being self-reflective. You mentioned mental health. We talked about recharging batteries. What do you do to take care of yourself? I like to run. Yeah. I'm not a runner, but... (laughs) (laughs) The difference is... I, I don't... I mean, I don't run every day. I can't like just go on an eight mile run. Sure. I'm on, on this running group on Facebook. They're okay. like, oh, I just ran 10 miles and it was wonderful. I'm like, how do you do that? <laughs> but um, I like to run. I've run a couple half marathons. I thought well, about running a marathon, destination marathon. Might have to wait until we can travel again. But I like to run. I like to ride bikes with the kids cool. and do activities, go to their baseball games. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we asked this question in interviews at Lemonly. What would you say is your superpower? The one thing you do better than everyone else? Strategize. Okay. Yeah. You know, I was just talking to a young leader in town about there's people who are great doers, right? Like they can make the logo and the website and the Google forms and get the information. Um, And there's people who can strategize really well, like can see the big picture and have a vision for that. But there's not too many people who can do both. And I think because of the nonprofit settings I've always been in, I've always had to do everything, right? Like we don't have the luxury of hiring all the staff to do all the different pieces. And so I think I I can strategize and make things happen quickly because I can do both. Cool. Um, And then the last one, what did you want to be when you were growing up? So I don't know why, but I remember when I was like in third grade, I wanted to be a child psychiatrist. Okay. And we had a psychiatrist family friend member and I interviewed him. Oh, funny. But I specifically wanted to be a child psychiatrist, but then I like failed biology in college. So it's like, I think I'm going to shift gears. 
But I think my parents always knew I was going to be a lawyer. Really? I was always very strong-willed, okay. we'll call it. Um, argumentative and strong-willed, even though I'm not you know, a litigation attorney. But yeah. um, I think those personality characteristics are- You aren't going to roll over easy. Yeah. Yeah. Who are your mentors, elders, the yeah. leaders that have inspired you? There, so I come from this gem of a Muslim community in mid-Michigan, right? Um, it's very diverse. It was founded by African-American Muslims. Mm -hmm. um, and so I always grew up in a very racially diverse community. Um, and sh and we had a, a very strong woman Muslim leader, which is still rare to find sure. in communities today. And so this was cool. 35 years ago. She, she, Rana Auntie, we called her, she passed away 10 years ago. But she, I hope I'm like her. Like, I, I wish I could ask her, like, is this what she yeah. was like when she was younger? Because she was a physician by day, but an activist by night. Um, you know, I don't know all the amazing activism that she's done, but her family was invited to the White House wow. um, for our holy month before it became like an annual thing. So mm -hmm. that's kind of like the pinnacle moment, cool. right? That I see her. And so she, she taught me that you can have a family and a career and be active and have activism and it's okay. Cool. You had a model there. Yeah. Perfect. Well, that's what I got. Thank you so much for coming down and for doing the show and yeah. sharing your important message fun. and doing your important work. Thanks, Thanks. Tanisa. Thank you. So that was episode four of the Lead More podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I do have one request. If you're able, please go to the Apple podcast and give us a five-star review. When you're a new podcast, that's super important and helpful. And remember to subscribe to the Lead More podcast. We are on all the platforms that you probably listen to, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher. So find, search Lead More podcasts, click subscribe. And thank you so much for listening.